From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. No holds barred. All topics are on the table with the exception of the Oakland Athletics. I'm <laughs> still in mourning over uh, my team's loss on Wednesday, so we're just... Let's not go there. I'll go with the upcoming uh, Giants loss on Sunday that you'll have to look forward to. You know, I'm ready for that. We have experience in that. We have a lot of recent experience in watching the Giants lose, so I'm okay with that. But uh, All kidding aside, uh, let's get into the show. We have a a big show, three really big topics that we want to get to. Uh, this week. Let's just start at the top. Everybody is interested in the master educator premiums, the financial incentives that the state uh, launched this year designed to reward and incentivize the state's highest performing teachers, the veteran rock star teachers who are at the top of their game. Uh, Kevin, we got news earlier this week about the awards being delivered. Walk me through the numbers and what we yeah. learned. Yeah, let's go straight to the stats here. Uh, no sabermetrics here, no next-gen stats, but the basic numbers here that we've been waiting for, 1,226 teachers across the state will receive a share of the master educator premiums. That is 87% of the teachers who applied. You had 1,405 teachers go through this process, fill out the portfolio, put their name in for the, for the premium, Like I said, the vast majority of the applicants did make the cut. They will get $4,000 a year for three years, uh, you know, assuming that this program is fully funded over the course of those three years, and that's not guaranteed, but there's sort of the promise that this is a program that's going forward. What does that mean for the state? Well, we now know how much the first year of this program is going to cost. 1,226 premiums at $4,000 a premium comes to just about $4.9 million. That's far less than legislators expected. That's quite a bit less than legislators budgeted for this program. If you go back, uh, it was $7.2 million that the legislature earmarked because nobody really knew what to expect here. Nobody knew how many teachers were actually going to apply. Nobody really knew how many teachers would make the cut. So brand new program, lots of uncertainty. We've certainly chronicled uh, all of the, the hiccups along the way, the, the delays in the review process, the glitches in getting materials out to the teachers who are reviewing the portfolios from their colleagues. We've chronicled the, the time-consuming process that teachers went through just to apply, just to get their materials in uh, by the uh, July deadline. But now we know a little bit better about how this process played out for, for teachers on the ground. And, and we're going to take a closer look. Uh, I don't think we're done reporting on this uh, on this series of awards. We're going to hope to break down some of the numbers, get you a better sense of where the money's going. I mean, who got the money? You know, How is it broken down by region? We'd love to drill down. We've asked uh, to get some numbers to sort of drill down to get a sense of you know, how many teachers, say, in Boise or West Ada got a share of the premiums? Because we've already reported that, you know, big numbers of teachers in Boise and West Ada, disproportionate numbers of teachers in Boise and West Ada applied for the premiums. That was roughly half the applicant pool, I want right, to say. Right, right. A, a big chunk of the applicant pool, even allowing for the fact that we're talking about the two largest districts right. in the state, uh, application numbers out of proportion with that. So it'll be very interesting to break down further what we know you now and 
and what we can you know glean about where the money's going, what teachers across the state uh, got a share of this funding. Some answers we got this week. Some answers we didn't get this week about sure, sure. educator premiums, though, as well. Yeah, a- absolutely. Let's get into that. And I'm not sure where to start, but maybe one place we can start is you reached out to State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra through the State Department of Education. She's kind of the school's chief, uh, state superintendent. Uh, her office is kind of responsible for the day-to-day uh, oversight and implementation of education policy with the school districts. You had three, I think, very fair, pertinent, relevant, timely, newsworthy questions for the superintendent about this program, which is very much in the public eye. It's talked about. Uh, some of our most read stories this year have been about master educator yeah. premiums and the incremental updates. And so educators want to know what's going on. Taxpayers want to know what's going on. And you put a couple questions yeah. to the superintendent. What did you ask and what did you find out? Right. So I don't feel like we picked this topic out of a hat here. I no. mean, as you mentioned, this is, there's been a lot of scrutiny uh, around the master educator premiums. So when we got the word and the process came to a conclusion on Tuesday, I emailed uh, Ibarra staff with three questions. What did Superintendent Navarra think about the way this process rolled out uh, the first year? Does she support continuing the Master Educator Premium Program? Or does she think that there's a different way that the state should go about trying to reward veteran teachers? Sent that out Tuesday afternoon. Wednesday afternoon, I got a no comment from uh, Navarra spokeswoman, Chris Rodine. And I wrote about this because like I, like I said, and like you said, this has been such a closely watched rollout. And, and there's been a lot of scrutiny, and there's already been some question about whether this is the right approach to rewarding veteran teachers. I mean, you've had the co-chair of Governor Little's Education Task Force openly question whether this is the right way to reward veteran teachers. Correct. Making teachers go through this 100, 100 or so hour process of applying for a premium. You have talk coming from the task force about trying to raise the maximum salary, and we will get to the task force here in a bit. So with all of that going on, I thought it was timely and I thought it was germane to ask the superintendent what she thinks about the program now that that we've seen the first year rollout. So I wrote about the no comment, and I thought it was important to let readers know what we asked and what we didn't get answers to. Um, you know, again, I, I, I was really, I, I guess I was surprised that uh, the superintendent had nothing to say about a program that has, you know, generated so much interest and, and has generated quite a bit of pushback from members of the teaching community. And I, th- and I want to step back even one step further and talk about why we asked the superintendent and why we wanted this information. And I want to be really clear that you didn't ask just because you felt like you needed to know or you felt like you should know. We asked so that we could report it yeah. to the public. And I think the superintendent has an opportunity to lead here. Not only is she the, the state superintendent, she's a voting member of the State Board of Education, and she's a voting member of Governor Brad Little's uh, Our Kids, Idaho's Future Education Task Force. And so it's not like we felt that she owed it to tell us or yeah, that we about, needed to know. It's not about know. us, it's not about me. And, and we've had kind of commenting on our Facebook page that's kind of gone back and forth about that. But no, it's not. It's to relate to the public. Kevin. Uh, it's about, you know, 
It's about the public, and it's about a statewide elected official answering questions about a statewide policy that... Right know, in her that, wheelhouse. That is right in her bailiwick. And right in the news, everyone's talking about it. It's a, an expense. It's a significant amount of money, even at $4.9 million. There's some questions about the rollout, questions about the efficacy of the program, questions about whether it's rewarding the correct teachers, because I think we talked about several thousand teachers did not apply who may have been eligible. Mm -hmm. I think the state anticipated 8,000 to 10,000 educators would have met the minimum requirements, including the eight years of classroom teaching experience. But rather than having 10,000 applicants, we had 1,405. Right. And, and the teacher of the year from 2019, Mark Badia out of American Falls, did not apply. And so I think there's a lot of questions from policymakers about is this the right way to do what we want to do to incentivize and reward our top performers. And there's so, significant questions in the public's mind, on the taxpayer's mind, on policymakers' mind. And I think the superintendent had an opportunity to lead here and, and shape the discussion. About the only answers we can glean at this point are uh, found in Ibarra's budget request for 2020. Sure. And even those answers are, are fairly inconclusive. Ibarra is seeking a boost in teacher salaries. She's seeking $40 million to boost high-end teacher salaries. I mean, this would get you towards that $60,000 maximum salary that, uh, that's that been talked about these past couple of months we'll get, with yeah. the task force, which we will still get to. Uh, the Ibarra budget also earmarks $7.2 million for master educator premiums. The same amount, Status quo. The same amount as uh, the legislature funded this year. And, you know, in fairness, when this budget was submitted... It was early. It was early. Uh, she had no way of knowing. We had no way of knowing. Nobody could tell for sure exactly how many teachers would get the premium. Nobody could know exactly how much would go out this year. So the $7.2 million doesn't necessarily mean... $7.2 million for new, new premiums to reward a new set of teachers. Because you remember, this is a three-year process. If you're going to pay for this over three years, you need money over three years. So $4.9 million of that would be eaten up if all those teachers remained in the state of Idaho and, and, and the program continued, which it's law, and so unless it's repealed, it will. Uh, it would take $4.9 million of that seven two just to pay for the teachers who've already been promised Just it. in continued funding. It, yeah. it doesn't really mean expanding the program or continuing the program or opening up a new round of applications. Because you couldn't double it with that budget request. You could not have a second year of 1,405 more teachers applying uh, adding that to the ones who already got it this year, that wouldn't be enough money. Right. If, if you had another crop of 1,200 teachers, you would need more money yep. than, than is in this budget. So it's really hard to draw any hard and fast conclusions from her budget request. But that's about the best we've got to go on right now. We just don't know. Because uh, she's not talking. Yep. Um, if you want to get caught up, a couple articles over the course of this week with the numbers and the analysis piece on Superintendent Ibarra. You were busy the first half of the week, Kevin, uh, but IdahoEdNews.org, that's our homepage, that's the place to go. And you want to scroll back to Wednesday uh, for the article about Superintendent Ibarra, and I think Tuesday for the article about uh, the awards going out, the 1,226, uh, I want to say. So while I was crunching those numbers and getting those numbers out on Tuesday morning, 
Clark, you were in Moscow for Go a pivotal hearing, <laughs> pivotal meeting of the uh, of the K twelve task force. Um, lots of windshield time getting up there and, and, and back, but uh, Tuesday was the big day. We got a better sense of how this task force is going to narrow down its focus. Give us the highlights of what they came up with, and, and maybe a little bit of the the feel for how the discussion went on Tuesday. Yeah, and this was actually interesting because after almost four plus, almost five months worth of work and, and 25 meetings all together, um, the task force actually began narrowing its focus late on Tuesday afternoon up in Moscow. They had 11 recommendations come forward out of these subcommittees, which is basically how I spent my summer tracking yes. these subcommittees coming up with the 11 recommendations. Doing yeoman's work in, in subcommittee <laughs> meetings this summer. Yeah, and so um, they whittled that down to four, and there's going to be a fifth recommendation coming this month. And so these are top priority recommendations coming from the task force. And let's just go through quickly what they were, and then we'll get to a little bit of the story behind the story yes. and, and kind of the tone uh, up there in Moscow. But the four recommendations that were given priority status based on consensus Tuesday include additional training and access to additional resources tied to serving students facing social and emotional challenges including trauma and mental illness. This mm -hmm. was a long, long discussion point on Tuesday morning about social and emotional well-being, about trauma, about mental illness. Uh, that's a top priority Not a new issue. This is something that Superintendent Navarra has folded into her budget request as well. I mean, this, this, is, this has been... That's been a big there, issue. There's some momentum on this. Yeah, thing. it's been a big issue, and it, and it has been an issue that Superintendent Ibarra has pushed to the forefront over the years, starting with her anti-bullying campaign and some of the other things. Uh, so the first one, uh, training and resources tied to social-emotional well-being, trauma, mental illness. The second recommendation, uh, greater opportunities for optional. Optional is important. Optional all-day kindergarten mm -hmm. throughout the state of Idaho. That's two. The third one, we've talked about a lot, expanding and building out the third rung of the career ladder system. That's the state's salary allocation model. Sure. But building out the third rung of the career ladder program to pay out up to $60,000. A lot of task force members said this was unfinished business, going back to Butch Otter's uh, 2013 K-12 task force. If you remember, the recommendations were a salary program that pays out three levels of 40,000, 50, and 60. We're closing in on 40 and 50, did not do 60, and so right. this task force views that as a little bit of unfinished business. The fourth uh, recommendation, and this gets a little confusing and a little jargony, but the term they're using is collapsing state earmarks in the budget that are known as line items, getting rid of the specific earmarks and then folding that money into discretionary funding where school districts and their administrators will have a little bit more flexibility on where to spend the money. They don't necessarily have to follow the earmark. They can invest the money locally where it's needed best. Um, and, and that's sort of a confusing topic. It touches on these changes we've been looking at, uh, proposals over the last couple of years with the funding formula, even though it doesn't directly address the funding formula. But that's a little bit confusing one, but it's basically getting the specifics out of the budget in favor of flexibility. And there were some concerns about that recommendation. Right. The fifth recommendation will be coming later this month in October, and that is a new accountability system that emphasizes accountability for school leaders. We're talking superintendents and principals based on growth and literacy scores from the IRI, that Idaho Reading Indicator Test that's administered 
administrated in grades, kindergarten through third mm -hmm. grade, uh, and then using those scores to compare schools with similar demographic characteristics. So those are the five recommendations down from 11. It's important to know that the full task force, while they gave consensus to these priorities, they have not actually voted on them. We don't think that vote will take place actually until November 4th, a month but, from today. But you can see where the task force is heading, yep. and you can see where some of the pushback is going to be. I mean, and you got a sense of it up there on, on Tuesday, especially when the, the teacher salary issue came up. That when the teacher salary issue came up, that is one where there was a little bit of resistance. The task force had talked in general terms all summer about wanting to move the needle and raise pay for veteran teachers. Um, but several of the legislators on the task force had questions about this, were skeptical about this. Uh, Representative Gary Marshall, an Idaho Falls Republican, I think he's a first-term legislator, first or yeah, second. Yeah, I believe so. Um, I believe first term. Serves on the House Education Committee and said, you're going to have to back up. I, I don't know what this means, 40, 50, 60. What does it mean going to $60,000? Do they jump automatically from 50 to 60? And some legislators just had some pause uh, over this. And so I think that that might be kind of a battle, kind of a, a, a division point potentially if the if the recommendation does go forward and get approved, Governor Little adopts it. I think that could be a, a, a heavy lift uh, and, and, a, and a real healthy debate uh, this upcoming legislative session. Um, so I don't know, and stay tuned. But the elephant in the room on that one is this Freedom Foundation report that we've talked about off and on over mm -hmm. the last three weeks. That it, It's called Broken Ladder, but it's attempting to point out what the Freedom Foundation believes are flaws or problems or errors with the career ladder rollout. And this report has gained traction among legislators and among some task force members. But I also know that there's some task force members who are concerned about the way that report is presented and about the accuracy and validity of that report. Mm -hmm. um, but we're talking a lot of money. We're talking about a potential battle uh, in an environment where it's an election year next year. We know financial resources are going to be limited. The legislature has already spent the last five years increasing teacher salaries, granted at the lower levels, at the earlier levels in a teacher's career for your younger and experienced teachers. Uh, I don't know that this is a slam dunk. And I'm not trying to say what's right or what's wrong here. No, no, I'm trying no. to say uh, a debate could be coming up. trying to get a sense of up. where the political battle could be. And, and definitely, if we're talking about tens of million dollars into high-end teacher salaries, there could be a political battle, especially when there isn't a whole lot of money to go around. Yeah. Uh, the other point, um, talking about these collapsing the budget line items, Marianne yes, Reynolds, superintendent really of the West Ada School District, said... The more and more I talk to my colleagues, the more and more concern is mounting over this proposal. And she says, okay, just follow me here. If we collapse some of these line items, if we get rid of some of the mandates, she's concerned that the funding may at some point go away or be decreased, yet the, state will, the schools will still be on the hook for some of the performance metrics that were tied to those funding pools. And she says, that's the concern, and we just don't know where this is going to go. But I get the sense that it's causing a lot of anxiety for school leaders the more and more that they think about what that could mean, especially if the state is in for, and who knows, but some folks are forecasting a potential recession or economic slowdown of some point over the next three years. But not what you would expect. I mean, you would expect uh, administrators to embrace 
the added local control. And there's the added tension. discretion. There's that, tension there because school district leaders very much are calling for flexibility. Hey, Boise. Hey, state legislature. Don't tell us what to do. Trust us to do it. But we really like to know that there's dedicated funding for some of these initiatives and programs. So that's absolutely right. There's that tension there between those two philosophies. School leaders are absolutely saying, trust us. Get rid of some of these compliance reporting requirements. Let us spend the money. We know best where the money needs to go at the local level. You don't know best. But then there's that tension coming in, right? Well, we'd really like to have dedicated funding for take your pick. We want to make sure that that's preserved and retained. And if you're going to hold us accountable for meeting goals tied to that funding, and if the funding does come away because it's been intermingled with everything else and then we'd see a budget hold, hold back down the road, that's going to leave us in a difficult position. So there's that tension between those philosophies, right? Right, right. And, and that could be a, a pressure point coming into this next session. And I would expect that there's going to be pushback as well. On all-day kindergarten. Well, uh, they're on all-day kindergarten and the cost attached to that, but also on this uh, proposal to make the Idaho reading indicator into a performance metric to grade schools and administrators. I mean, I, I suspect that there are going to be educators who are saying, hey, hold on here. This is designed to be a screener to give us a sense of where young kids need extra help in reading. And now it's going to be used as a metric to, to judge schools and administrators. I would imagine there's going to be considerable pushback on that. So well, even I, though the task force is yeah. finishing its work, this stuff is a long way from being a done deal. Well, I, when you talk about accountability system and moving to the screen or the IRI test, I just want to flash back one or two years to 2017, 2018. The state developed at that time what was a new accountability system, and the message was very clear. We do not want one high-stakes test or two days of high-stakes test, one at the beginning of the year, one at the end of the year, to determine things like school accountability. Um, they wanted multiple measures of growth, uh, multiple indicators, and that's what we have in the accountability plan that was tied to Idaho's consolidated state plan to comply with the Every Student Succeeds Act. That was only like two years right. ago that that was developed. Right. This, is, this is a brand new test for, for schools. They're trying to get a handle on how to administer it, how to read the results. Uh, if you move and make that into a an accountability measure for schools and, and administrators, I, I imagine that's going to be a, a very sensitive topic. But a lot for us to cover, a lot for us to digest as this thing uh, moves forward. Yeah, if you want to get caught up, once again, the homepage, idahoednews.org. On Tuesday evening, I had a big story uh, out of Moscow, out of that task force, and about narrowing the recommendations. I think there are going to be two more meetings with this task force, one in October, a final meeting perhaps November 4th. We'll continue to follow it. We'll continue to follow their implementation plan. Uh, I will step back and let you know in the next week or two what's going to happen with those recommendations that did not become made priorities. Uh, I'm going to take a step back and follow up on that. But we're going to continue to follow it. And so why is this important? Just real briefly, because Governor Brad Little is looking for a five-year plan for education. And if he's happy with the task force's work and adopts these recommendations, we could see him advocate for them in a State of the State address, in right. his uh, own budget request. It could really become the governor's education agenda for the remainder of his first term. going into what could be a very contentious session. Yeah, and so that's why it's important. That's why we're following it. And again, I'm not trying to say what's right or wrong or what should happen here. I'm just trying to give a sense of some of the debates and sticking points and issues right. and context 
uh, here. But right. um, appreciate you taking a few minutes. And, and some of that was kind of insidery, and I apologize no, no, for I, that. That's, that's the value of you being up there, is to just give us a sense of what you heard and what the mood of the room was. was. So, so I'm glad we kind of explored that some more. I, I was glad that we took the trip uh, to be there, that we made it important uh, to tell that story and to share that information. One Plus, more, it's a gorgeous drive. It, I mean, it was it, a gorgeous drive. It, it was an amazing drive. It was a drive. long time in the car by myself, but it was, it was a gorgeous drive. Uh, and the Palouse was, was really <laughs> looking good <laughs> this time of no, year. It's, it's, Colors it's, changing and very scenic. Uh, you know, driving through forest and across rivers and, and over mountain passes. Just an amazing drive in a beautiful state. So was happy to do it. One more big story that I want to get to this week, and it's been your coverage of the State Board of Education, the recent appointment, but overall kind of taking a step back and looking at What's the process that Governor Little is using to fill what had been until recently two vacant positions on the State Board of Education? What'd you dig into and what'd you find out? The process has turned out to be a lot more interesting and filled with a lot more intrigue than I, than I realized. So, you know, take us back to last week and we led our podcast last week talking about Sean Keogh, yep. uh, Governor Little's first choice for one of the two vacancies on the, on the State Board. This is one of those times where a commenter, we do read the comments. I mean, we joke, joke about not reading the comments, but sometimes a, a commenter points out something that, you know, we didn't realize or I didn't realize. A commenter said, hey, you know, you do know that Sean Keogh didn't apply for this job in, in June when the governor asked for applications for the vacancies. And I looked at that and I was like, yeah, there. You're right, and we and I, I didn't realize that it just had not registered with me. That well, kudos to that list. commenter because I was saying last week, why didn't I think of this? Of course, Sean Keogh would be the appointee. Well, because she wasn't on the list well, that the governor reason. put yes. out of the applicant pool, so that's why I didn't think about it. But hats off to that commenter being on the ball. So that got me wondering. Well, what's going on here? How, how did we get here? Um, so I did ask the governor's office for a, a, a timeline, and they did talk to, uh, to Keogh on Monday. What we do know is that she applied in August. That's well over a month after the, uh, the governor's self-imposed deadline for applications. What we don't know, because Keogh wouldn't say, and the governor's office won't say either, is whether the governor or staff approached Keogh and said, hey, we'd, we'd sure like to see you apply for this. Now, you know, we know and we've you know, we talked about it last week that, you know, the ties between Brad Little and Sean Keogh go way back to when they were both state senators, back to when Little was the lieutenant governor presiding over the Senate. Uh, th these two... And he the picked her to head up a subcommittee of the task force right, this right. summer. I mean, you know, They've been working closely together. Right. So, I, I again, I think what we talked about last week, that, that Little would tap uh, Keogh for a spot on the state board, and that, that's not surprising and, and pretty much in, in character with, uh, with what Little is probably looking for in the state board. That all still holds, but I'm still really curious about how we got to this point with Keogh, you know, kind of jumping into the, the forefront in this process. We also came to find out, I also came to find out um, something that was really under the radar. Back in August, um, Little offered a spot on the state board to Brad Rice. He is the chairman of the Lewiston School District Board of Trustees. He's been in that position for several years. He is serving on one of the subcommittees in, uh, for Governor Little. The School Lillis Safety and Facilities Subcommittee, right. I want to say. One of the subcommittees uh, on the task force. He was approached by Little 
about a spot on the state board. And he said in August that he turned the governor down. I, this completely flew under the radar for me. It was reported in the Lewiston Tribune back in August. Marty Trillhouse, an old friend of ours, the editorial writer at the Lewiston Tribune, alluded to it in an editorial this week. I read that and was like, okay, <laughs> I didn't know that. That's news to me. Let's find out more about that. The, the common thread here, a couple of common threads here with, with Brad Rice and Sean Keogh, as we mentioned, both have been active on the uh, the education task force for Governor Little, and neither applied for a position on the state board by that June deadline. So we're kind of at this point where I'm trying to get a sense of what's the governor's process here for filling the first position on the state board, the, the Sean Keogh position, and the other vacancy on the state board. He still has a vacancy to fill. And I'm asking really basic questions of the governor's office at this point. I have asked for a list. Who has applied at this point? Yeah, Not yeah. just the 38 that the governor's office identified back in June, but who else has applied? Who else has applied that the public doesn't even know has applied for a position on the state board? The state board is such a powerful panel that it's definitely clearly in the public interest. Who wants a spot on the state board? Right. So I've asked for a list. We've not been furnished with a list. I've made a public records request for the resumes of all of the applicants not just the 38 we know of, and not just Sean Keogh, who we now know is, is an appointee, but everybody who's applied. And that's a public records request. I filed it on Wednesday. There is uh, you know, a time lag uh, for complying with a records request that so we don't know. And it's something we're really pushing for because the state board has such influence over K-12 policy, over higher education policy. These are two really pivotal appointments to the state board. It's, it's Governor Little's first chance to put his imprint on, on the state board. Clearly, he's not holding himself to that list of applicants that, that he asked for in May and in June. He's not required to. There's nothing legally yeah. binding yeah. him to keep to that list of 38 applicants. He can go and you know, appoint anybody he wishes to, to the state board. But it would be definitely in the public interest to get a sense of who really is in the running, who has really applied for this position, and who has applied since that June deadline. Um, we're, we're trying to find out, and as soon as we get more information, we will share it. And, and once again, just to step back, you, you talked about that public interest, but I get the sense more and more that, that people don't always understand why journalists and reporters do the things that they do. And, and we're not doing this uh, to needle the governor or, or to, to give him a hard time or to give his staff a hard time. We really believe, and this is kind of a core value for, for you and me, Kevin, and for, for all the journalists that we know, that we want to give the public and the taxpayers and the state's residents more information about what their government is up to, about the policies they're shaping, about the people they're going to pick in leadership positions, about how their tax dollars are being spent, about how the gears of government work and work together or, or, or don't work together at times when they don't. And so we really believe that there's an intrinsic value just to helping people understand more about who are the players involved, who's, who's running your government, who's interested in influence, how is the money being spent, what are the policies being developed, what does the data say, and so we want to get information and data out in front of Idahoans. And that's why we do everything we do is because we view that there's an intrinsic value to informing the public about that, and we want to help 
spread that information to the public. That's really why we do what we do. Right. I mean, it's not about, I'm going to use air quotes on a podcast, which doesn't work, but it's not about whether Sean Keogh is a, air quote, good appointee to the state board. That's not, that's not my job to determine, and it's not our job to determine. Certainly, Sean Keogh has a long resume in, in state government. There's no question about that. Other people who have applied that we know have applied also have pretty impressive resumes in politics, in education, in business. And we don't know who else is in the running or who else has put their, their name in. And I, it's in the public interest to know who's applying for these important positions and who is the governor choosing from a field of applicants and how is he choosing from a field of applicants and how we got to the point of approaching one potential appointee and uh, having another applicant come in afterwards and, and get an appointment. How, do, how did we get to this point and how, you know, what does that mean going forward for, for the state board? I think these are all important questions that we're trying to get to the bottom of. I hope we can have more information out to you next week uh, as, as we get some some information from the governor's office. We're gonna we're gonna keep pushing this issue. It's an important one to us. Yeah, and sometimes we bump heads with government officials and their staffs when we're in there pushing for disclosure. But we're always gonna push for disclosure and always err on the side of disclosure. And some people might think we push too far in that direction, but that's where we're coming down on. And sometimes we do bump heads with governments. Uh, whether it's the superintendent and, and her staff or the governor and his staff, but it's it's not personal. It's about we want to get more information out to hopefully better inform the public. That's it's, really it's, where it's we're not, coming right. down. And it's not personal, and it's not taken personally uh, by a lot of folks here. I mean, like I said, I talked to Sean Keogh on Monday. Uh, I have covered Keogh for years, going back to, to covering the legislature and, and now covering uh, the legislature for Idaho Ed News known Keogh for a long time and I you know we had a perfectly civil and cordial conversation about about the process there were things she didn't want to talk about and you know we, we had to leave it at that I don't sense that she took it personally I certainly didn't take it personally asking questions and not getting answers uh, getting all my answers from uh, from Senator Keogh uh, you know the you know this is the process. This is what we do as reporters, and when it is something as pivotal as uh, two spots on the state board of education, we're going to uh, be be sticklers about uh, finding out as much information as we can and disseminating as much information as we can. That's what we're here to do. Okay, um, just want to wrap up a couple of big stories that we didn't get to this week or that we think will be coming out next week. Uh, an update on the Boise pre-K program. Yeah, new, new pre-Ks are opening on Monday. I've got the rundown on that. Uh, this is a program that uh, Boise launched a few years ago with help from the city of Boise. So, uh, the district is picking it up and expanding. we tell you more about that. Our Eastern Idaho reporter, Devin Bodkin, uh, has kind of a story about the Higher Education Council. That's the college and university presidents, and they get together focusing on the go-on rate. Um, I thought that was kind of an interesting story, and, and Devin took a crack at that. Uh, earlier this week, and so there's some good information there. And we've been tracking, you've been tracking, you were in the courthouse on Thursday. Uh, you and Sammy Edge have been kind of tag-teaming coverage of the trial involving former Fruitland High School principal Mike Fitch. Yep. We'll have the latest on that. 
Uh, IdahoEdNews.org. Check the homepage, IdahoEdNews.org. We feel like there could be a verdict handed down on Friday, October 4th, which is the day that we're recording this podcast. Uh, I was in the courtroom when he took the stand yesterday. Sammy is there today for closing arguments and jury deliberations. We think there could be a verdict by the end of the day. So check the homepage if you're interested. Okay. All right. We got to this week. That was a show, wasn't it? Yes, there was definitely (laughs) a show there. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much. We always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this complicated intersection of education policy, education politics. Uh, I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Go Giants and have a good week. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody.